This is the Libertarian Podcast at the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, we know Richard as the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's also the Lawrence H. S. Professor of Law at NYU, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today we're zooming out to do a, a bigger picture conversation on the Supreme Court. And we're going to do that, I, I'd like uh, today, because of a case called Biden v. Nebraska, which is causing some consternation among some legal pundits and, and writers. Now, on its face, the case deals with President Biden's executive order on student loans, but I actually want to set that issue aside. I think the more interesting point here uh, to talk about is that the Supreme Court decided to hear the case before it was heard in lower federal courts. Um, that to me is interesting because I thought the Supreme Court was the court of last resort. You got there um, when issues couldn't be resolved or had to be weighed in on um, that the, the lower courts couldn't couldn't decide. So Richard, take me through this. How common is it for the Supreme Court to say, we'll handle this before anyone else? And do you think that that's an appropriate use of the court's power? Um, I think you first have to all understand what went on. You didn't quite state it correctly. I think there were the two lower courts that passed on this stuff, and both of them found that the uh, uh, act was, in fact, or the decision of the Biden administration exceeded its powers and were prepared to enter nationwide injunctions. Uh, so this was a case in which if they didn't take it and they went to another level of appeal, the thing was sitting limbo even further. And there were millions of people who had signed up. There were millions of people who were granted these kinds of things. And everybody knows that this is an issue on which the Supreme Court is ultimately going to have to decide it. Uh, so the question is, does it make sense for them to take it now, having seen a couple of opinions on this and having exhaustive briefing, or do they want to delay the thing by at least three or four months, leaving everybody in limbo for that period of time? I think they made the right decision. Um, I think there's very little that you could get from a set of intermediate court decisions that isn't already available on the record. And I think that the appropriate thing is to decide it. I also think, regrettably, that this is a very easy case and that the Biden administration seriously misbehaved when it decided to issue this. This was done under an emergency authorization statute from 2003, which is supposed to deal with wars and general kinds of conflicts and similar emergencies. The conflict that they talked about was the covert emergency, right, uh, which they just declared a couple of days later as being completely over. Uh, so what they're doing is they're finding very bad conditions that existed in March of 2020 and are saying in 2022 that what this does is it involves the most dramatic action ever seen with respect to student debt. Uh, there have been actions in which you've postponed the payments or deferred the payments or forgiven some interest to payments, but there's never been a wholesale release voting trillions of dollars done through some sort of flimsy instrument. And so if you ask why it is that the case gets such attention, it turns out that it clearly is manifestly beyond what's happening. And I think it's pretty clear to say that executive orders have basically transformed themselves in the last 20 years. The uh, first notable use on this was in the uh, uh, first in the Clinton administration, then going into the Bush administration. And Elena Kagan, when she was going back to the academic, wrote a piece on executive orders in the 2001 Harvard Law Review, sort of saying, well, this is a way to goose things along. If it turns out that Congress is going to be a little bit too uh, reluctant, the Bush administrated uses some occasionally made executive orders. They also had signing declarations saying, yes, we will sign this legislation, but we'll reserve our presidential powers. And people say, oh, it's a little 
little bit dicey, and indeed it was, although I don't think Bush abused that particularly. Uh, under Obama, the use of executive orders starts to increase, including the one having to do with the clean power plant, which I thought went well beyond permissible levels and later became the subject of a case called West Virginia against the United States. A uh, momentous decision decided this past term. Uh, Trump comes in. He actually does less of this stuff by executive order than do the other guys. And so his most important executive order was right in the beginning of his term. The Obama administration, in my way, wholly without justification, had decided to stop the construction of the DAPL pipeline going from uh, South Dakota to Illinois, a thousand mile project on what I thought were thoroughly spurious grounds. And what uh, essentially what the uh, Trump administration administration did is it said, we're going to revoke that executive order, but he couldn't do anything by himself. But then the ordinary process kicked in, in which there was a presentation to Congress to see whether or not it would approve the pipeline, which it did. That was a proper use of an executive order, getting rid of something that should have never been done. It wasn't an executive order uh, trying to change the substantive landscape. Uh, the moment that uh, Biden gets into power, his first day, he decides to kill the Keystone Pipeline. And it was a scandalously bad decision in terms of what they did. It certainly enraged our foreign trading partners. Uh, most of the arguments that they made about the dangers associated with fossil fuels had nothing to do with the pipeline. Uh, there were no particular difficulties associated with their operation. And he managed to put this thing through. I thought it should have been challenged. And I thought it should have been struck down. And the same thing was true with respect to the Biden administration when it came on the West Virginia case having to do with the question of how it is that we define the best system of emissions reduction. And it turns out that the Obama administration and the District of Columbia Circuit Court took utterly fanciful readings. We could talk about that later, the statute. And what the Supreme Court did is it said, you know, this is a major doctrine. You cannot take a obscure provision of Environmental Protection Act and use it as a way to try to eliminate the use of fossil fuels and commit the United States through administrative order only uh, to a regime with century which have wind and solar as its primary sources. And I thought that that was utterly inappropriate. So uh, when I hear people starting to say that the court is intervening too much, I think the right answer to say is they're intervening in cases in which it turned out that the uh, Congress or the president have behaved scandalously in the way in which they've done. And if you go through case by case, much of this stuff has been allowed through by the United States Supreme Court. We can talk about the oil States case in Lucia later, if you would like. Uh, but the simple answer about this is that the court has made some mistakes. But the real source of this stuff is the executive branch and the Congress have certainly moved way beyond their usual regimes and the appropriate statement. And so their misbehavior, I think, has prompted the Supreme Court to intervene. I don't think they did it right in every case, to be sure. It never happens that way. But if you look at the general pattern, what's utterly absurd about it is the claim that somehow or other it's become an imperial court. Imperial courts would basically make abortion illegal as a constitutional matter. What they did is they turned it back to the political branches. Uh, that's hardly saying that they're going to have the last word on anything. They did the opposite on the gun cases. So what you really have to do is to think hard about whether or not there's a meaningful distinction between the two of us. But all in all, um, the piece in the New York Times that you're referring to um, was, I thought, a, a pretty bad cheap shot. It's by Jamel Bowie, and I just don't think he knows what he's talking about. Well, I want to dive into this just a little bit more. I mean, this this uh, with this particular case, Biden v. Nebraska, what the Supreme Court did, um, I guess jumping the line a little bit to weigh in on it, um, I think makes sense to me when it, you're right, there are millions of people who have signed up for student loan forgiveness and are left in limbo. 
However, looking at the numbers in the 25 years before, was it 2019? Uh, the Supreme Court had done this three times. Yeah. So since 2019, they've done it 18 times. So my question to you is, well, why is it? I mean, you've you mentioned a few things, but is it because the Supreme Court is looking at the administrative state and trying to trying to take it down a bit? Is it because of truly executive overreach? I mean, I seem to remember executive overreach with, I think, every administration I've ever followed in my life. So why is it that this this expansion of this um, this you know, taking cases early. Well, I mean, I, I think in many of the cases in which they granted, it's not at all clear that what they do is essentially have an imperial judiciary. I have not gone through the 18 cases to see what they say. And so I don't want to comment on any of them individually. But I do think it is clear that the following is true, is that under Obama and under Biden, the administrations have moved left. They move even further left under Biden than they did under Obama. And at the same time, with a 6-3 conservative majority, roughly speaking, it turns out the court, to some extent, has moved further to the right. And so it turns out that you would, would expect there to be many, many more very dramatic policy differences between the two of them. And I think in many cases, taking certiorari early rather than late in the process will have the great advantage of resolving something sooner if it turns out that there's a great deal at stake in the operation of these systems. These are extremely high stake cases. Uh, do I think that the, the Supreme Court has done a good job on all of them, on some of the things that they've done? I think they've done a terrible job. Uh, mainly because what they do is they give too much room to an administrative state to use ad hoc procedures inside the various agencies in order to prosecute people before the very bunch of folks who basically raise the charges. So there's no separation of power. And the so-called judges who are chosen are completely corrupt in the way in which they operate the stuff. I think that happened in the oil states case against Green. It also happened in the Lucia case, which means that you have uh, the patent and trade office on the one hand and the SEC on the other hand, doing really terrible things. The same thing could be happened with the EPA and what they said with respect to the West Virginia case. Uh, so you do have an administrative state which has really done some pretty scandalous things. Uh, right now, the FTC is surely on a tear, as is the Justice Department, because their views are Whenever we get a major question, what we're going to do is we're going to litigate it. We're not going to solve it. And, you know, that happened with the immune case on Grail, the big case, and they got it wrong. Uh, just yesterday, what they did is they basically said they're going to fight the Microsoft Activision merger, a $70 billion deal. And so when you start having very, very aggressive moves of this particular sort, um, you would expect to see a fairly strong kind of reaction on the other side. And, and, and what happens with the New York Times is, you know, they quote Mark Lemley, and it turns out all's well with the administrative state, which means that anything the court done is illicit. But if you take my view of it, much of what happens with the administrative state, including the Chevron doctrine, is very, very dangerous and ought to be cut back. And so on substantive grounds, I would disagree with them, even though uh, the worst cases of the Supreme Court are oddly enough where they've given the administrative state too much running room when it probably deserves less to have had. And, and we will see more cases like that coming up in which it turns out you see some very dubious administrative practices. And the real question is to figure out how it is best that you have to deal with them. Now, I sort of know your answer to this, but there's a follow-up I, I want to talk about. So recently it's been invoked to, uh, well, I guess cite polls that look at the legitimacy um, of the Supreme Court according to the public. And it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, it's fallen uh, quite, a, quite yeah. a bit. I mean, talking 10, 20 percentage points in the last maybe half decade or so. 
Do you think that that is because justices are playing politics and not following the law? Do you think it's because maybe, you know, the general, you know, people unlike you and me don't know what the Chevron doctrine is and, and care, you know, vehemently about it. Um, I mean, is, is the court a political institution or is it just supposed to be an arbiter of the law and it's not doing that? Well, we always know that it's a political institution, but we don't know who's playing politics. I mean, there are three possibilities. One is that one side is right and the other is wrong. The other one is it's reversed, or in some cases, both parties, uh, left and right. And the Supreme Court is wrong at both the majority opinion and the dissent. Spoken like a true about... libertarian, spoken like a true Richard Epstein. Yeah, but, but I, and I mean this. I mean, some of the cases that I've heard argue, I think the arguments have been just dreadful on both sides, just misunderstanding the cases about the way in which it goes. I think that's true with the Andy Warhol case. It got completely butchered in the Supreme Court on both sides. I think it was true with the environmental case having to do with the question of whether or not a dredge and fill permit manages to allow you to build way off of the land. All of this stuff, I think, is really just terrible. But let the, if you ask me what's going on about this, um, I think that 80% of the variance that you're going to see on this is going to depend upon the very complicated situation with respect to Roe v. Wade and its overruling. I think the way in which it sort of breaks down is that the public comes into three parts. Uh, uh, there is one part of it which believes that abortion is immoral and abortion ought to be illegal. There's another part of it which says that abortion is moral and abortion ought to be legal. And then there's that middle part where people say abortion is immoral, but I don't think the courts ought to get involved. And so if you start looking at that, uh, what will happen is there'll be a two to one majority in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade so that when you decide to overturn that, uh, you are going to basically upset a very long-standing political institutional arrangement. And the majority of the people would be in favor of Roe being a constitutional right. And that will reflect in the decline of the influence of the particular Supreme Court. It doesn't help, I might add, that you know the majority of the media on this issue has turned out to be very far to the left. And they keep bashing the Supreme Court in every conceivable way that they can. And that that also uh, basically compounds the basic difficulty that you have. Uh, oftentimes they say really outrageous things about how it is that Roe is a presage for everything else that's going to become tumbling down. Uh, nothing else is coming down after Roe, as far as I can tell, although there'll be certainly changes. And so I think that more than anything else has basically done this. So uh, I expect you'll see more of it. Um, at this point, as we start going forward and the emphasis becomes on procedural due process and the arbitrary power of the administrative state, I think the sentiments will start to shift again and the Supreme Court will start to look a little bit better. Uh, but then the other thing that we have to worry about is going forward, is there going to be any change in the composition of the court or any change in the composition of the cases that come before it? Uh, the bell mark in this term is going to be what's happening in Moore v. Harper, that is the North Carolina case, which is a complete tangle and a mess. I believe that most of the arguments on both sides are pretty wrong, but it's a very difficult thing to disentangle it. What's the source of the problem? You know what it is? There's a case called Ruscio in which the Supreme Court, imperial as it is, decided that it couldn't do anything to protect gerrymandered districts from taking place, um, which is, I think, a complete mistake. And so this is the imperial court now yields to the political branches. And what happens is in all the red state, they have corrupt maps favoring Republicans, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, in all the blue states, California, New York, Illinois, and so forth, Maryland, uh, they start having districts that 
corrupt in the opposite direction. And the Supreme Court is a passive bystander. This doesn't sound like an imperial Supreme Court to me. Uh, and what happens is those excesses give rise to real challenges of one kind or another. Some of them are right and some of them are wrong. Uh, but the great tragedy in this case is there's a void at the Supreme Court level of any effective guidance about what ought to be done. And my position has always been, I mean, for 50 years, is that once you intervene, you have to do it right. And simply having districts of equal number will not prevent massive abuse if the states are free to configure those districts in whatever shape that they want. When they do that, they will create majority-minority districts, that is, districts which are majority uh, Black or Latino. And when you create majority districts of that sort, then you throw all conservative Republicans into the other camp. And so what you do is you get a polarized Congress because of the way in which this operates. And if somebody had a ruler and a computer and could do compact districts respecting a few constraints don't decide don't divide neighborhoods or, or wards or whatever it is uh you could get rid of 80 percent of the abuse um through administrative means and you would not have these uh real minority minority districts and all the polarization that starts to take place so this is a case in which the vacuum which has happened because of poor Supreme Court decisions on the reapportionment stuff has created a political crisis. And then when you try to figure out how you handle individual redistricting cases, what happened in North Carolina is the political branches drew a very dubious map and the Supreme Court decided, that, rather the state decided to substitute it in its own map. Um, but the constitution says, hey, if redistricting is covered, uh, it's the legislature that has to decide that. Maybe you could overturn the map, but you can't draft the one that are on there. So when it gets to the Supreme Court the other day, uh, they were all in a muddle about what to do. The middle group of justices uh, wants to essentially make sure that the state courts have some role to constrain the legislature, but they don't want it to go so far as to allow it to draw the map themselves. And they're going to have a devil of a time trying to figure out what you do under this situation because the precedents are also in disarray and the number of policy options is basically the number of briefs that get submitted to the Supreme Court. So it's going to be a very hard thing for them to resolve. But the point to remember, at least at the first instance, is this all arises because of inaction at the Supreme Court, not because of its imperial nature. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to come back and read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published at Defining Ideas on Hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.